people can still be impatient. They can still be frustrated that you're not moving fast, but hopefully you build a little bit of credibility in the communication there that like it's a known issue and it's being worked on. And if you have long enough tenure, like I do at Glassdoor, you can point to things that have also broken and that you fixed as credibility builders. And I think that's probably where you start. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. All right, everyone. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I'm Christina Brady, and this episode is brought to you by our three incredible sponsors. Our first one is Showpad. Let me tell you about Showpad. They are the best thing to happen to your sales team, or certainly one of them. With Showpad, you can enable your team to win with the content and training they need to drive more meaningful customer conversations. If you want to learn more about them, visit showpad.com, and you can do so. Our next sponsor, is Upwork. And speaking of the best things ever, Upwork is the world's work marketplace, connecting millions of businesses with independent talent around the globe. They serve everyone from startups to 30% of the Fortune 100 company and growing. They are the trust-driven platform that enables companies and freelancers to work together in new ways that unlock their potential. Visit Upwork.com to learn more. And finally, we could not produce this podcast without our incredible partnership with the awesome team at Motion. Motion is a podcast podcasting service for scrappy marketing teams in the B2B tech space. They launch podcasts like ours and they make it easy to create audio, video, if that's your jam, and written content for each and every episode. You can find more about them at motionagency.io. Now that we have that set and out of the way, I am very excited to announce our guest of the day. We have Kate Allering, who is the Chief Sales Officer of Glassdoor. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here and good to see you. It's so good to see you and talk to you. It's always the light of my day when I get to interact with you. So (laughs) kicking it off a little bit, you have an incredible journey from working as an account manager at Blackboard to your long period of time and really true incredible professional growth at Active Network to now the way that you have moved around Glassdoor and achieved what so many women want to do, which is smashing through that ceiling and hitting the C-suite. Talk to us a little bit about your professional journey and what got you where you are. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to begin at the beginning where it all started. I grew up in Virginia. I'm an East Coaster, a recovering East Coaster who's now been in California for a really long time. But I grew up and went to school on the East Coast and was really an athlete for most of my life, which, you know, now sounds a little trite as it relates to like, ooh, sales leader, athlete, but it's the foundation and a big part of the lens that I see the world through. So I always like to mention that. And I was a basketball player in college and really just fell in love with leadership and coaching. And when I graduated, I went west to Southern California and I sat in front of another female vice president who was my boss for a long time, wonderful woman named Felicia Bukiko. And as a 23-year-old kid coming out of college, I said, well, I would just love to be in sales or marketing. And she said, what's the difference between sales and marketing? And at the time, (laughs) that stumped me. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted an opportunity. I was just looking to get in. And she said, I think you should be in sales. And so my journey began. And I rose the ranks active as a B2B SaaS 
company at the time that also had a B2C presence, active.com, if you're familiar, if you ever do activities, but effectively our software powered the registration and management of all of the activities of the world. So everything from Little League baseball, triathlons, business events, parking tickets, et cetera. And eventually I became an enterprise rep and led enterprise sales teams and was a leader of leaders as I left. And active grew really fast, you know, pretty awesome hyper growth story where we went public, double, triple, double, all that stuff with active. And then we're taking back private and I decided it was time to move on. At that point, I had a ton of great experience, built a ton of great relationships. And someone I knew from active had come to Glassdoor and her name was Allison Haddon. She remains a very good friend of mine. I know you have met her and worked with her, but she came to run sales enablement at Glassdoor. And although I, at the time, I sort of had a different idea of my trajectory. I thought I was going to go to big tech, give me to a big tech company. And she just got in my ear and said, you have to come meet these people and you have to come hear this story. And they're an experienced team. And I think it's special. And she was right. And as I always do, I was going to that moment where you interview and I interviewed with Robert Holman, who's the former CEO and co-founder of Glassdoor. And he sat on a yoga ball and slippers and with his hair standing straight up. And I was like, I have to work for this man. This needs to happen. And it's been an incredible ride of seven and a half, almost eight years now at Glassdoor. I came in and we were sub 10 million, took like half the team as a frontline sales manager. And eventually through opportunity over the course of that first year and a half, ascended and took on sales and have owned sales for the rest of the time. And in the last year or two, I've also taken on the challenge of CS and revenue operations and the full go-to-market for Glassdoor. So I think mine's just a story of opportunity and chance and making good on some of the luck that landed in my lap. Well, and not being afraid of ambiguity and not being afraid of the unfamiliar. I think bravery is a common theme that I hear, especially with really strong female leaders whose journey have taken them where yours have, which is this idea of being open to doing something that is new and something that maybe you never envisioned that you would do and seeing where it takes you and just embracing it and embracing success, embracing failure. And I love when you mentioned just the idea of wanting to work for Robert. As a former Glassdorian myself, Mm -hmm. the leadership is what pulled me in there. And I have yet to see a successful B2B tech company that doesn't have incredible leadership. They go hand in hand. And so... I love the mention there. And Mm -hmm. you had a perfect tie-in to even our topic of the day today, which is what it is like to lead teams that typically wind up being an almost an adversarial type of relationship. Maybe not on purpose, but when I think back to companies that I've either worked at or companies that I advise or talk to, there's always three teams that seem like they're either on the same page or they're totally on the opposite page. And that is sales, client success, and operations. And so usually, the individual contributors bump heads with each other and they filter that up to their managers and then their managers filter it all the way up and then you wind up with three executives in a room figuring out how are we going to get along. To kick us off, how did you get into a position where you went from just running the sales side of it to now owning and being the executive leader over sales, customer client success, and the revenue operations? How did that happen? I think somewhat naturally because of the circumstances that you just described. I mean, we, we certainly live that at different moments in time. On and off, I had the opportunity to lead sales operations and the sales operation sales relationship is so important and also so delicate. And then over the course of the last year, I've had the opportunity to further align the go-to-market by bringing in this customer success organization. And it just, it's sensical to have those parts of your organization fall into one organization so that you have goal alignment and you can charge towards the same set of 
tasks that are important to the team. So I think we saw the opportunity to improve the alignment across those groups. And I was just fortunate to be in the position that I'm the one that gets to wrangle those three groups on a daily basis now. (laughs) Herding cats. You're right that like on the sales or revenue production side of things, it makes a lot of sense to have sort of the new business teams, the growth teams, the client success teams all filtering into one leader. And we do see that more commonly. But I don't see very often a revenue leader that is also running the revenue operations side of things. And you mentioned that there is this delicate nature to that relationship. I think myself and anyone listening gives a little bit of a chuckle when you say like, it's a delicate relationship because we're like, yeah, but in your own words, as somebody who has an equal stake in both, what do you think contributes to that delicate relationship between sales and operations? Well, uh, let me first say when I began this journey of leading sales operations along with sales, it was probably one of these big leaps in my development and my growth that I had to undertake because if you come up through sales, like so many of the sales leaders and revenue leaders do, you kind of have the sales t-shirt on. And that leap, once you make it, you are forced to become an objective general manager instead of looking out for specifically, you know, I think the transition that I made was as a sales leader, you are spending a huge portion of your time driving the number for the quarter. And that is takes up a lot of your time, your energy, your focus. And once you expand and you're running larger parts of the go-to-market, yes, of course, the quarter is always important. And that's your job to make sure that the team achieves. But you're starting to think quarters out. And how do we set the team up for success two, three, four, eight quarters down the road? And that's really where the importance of sales operations and sales productivity and effectiveness all fall in. Because if you're not working with your operational leaders, who I believe they're really the backbone, your secret weapon to drive the number quarters out, you're going to miss. You're just going to be too focused on the near term. So for me, that's how I thought about it. But it was a jump. You can no longer just have your, it's like going from one kid to two. You can't just have a favorite child. You have to be objective in your approach because you need sales ops and sales ops need sales. And you have to make sure that you're understanding the perspectives and being fair and making the right business decisions based on the information that those two groups bring to you. But it's a leap for a former VP of sales to make the jump to an operational viewpoint too. My gosh, I can imagine it wasn't just a leap for you personally, but also buy-in from a company and team standpoint is huge because I would imagine that the operations team knows that you come from sales. And so that could be led with an interpretation of a biases. And so when you first got into that role, how did you one, acknowledge what biases you may have? And then two, how did you gain that buy-in to make sure that people really see you as this neutral party that is going to make decisions based on what is right versus where those biases fall? Yeah. And that was exactly the setting that I walked into. So when I took on sales operations, every most of the leaders and the team knew me because we had worked together for so long as VP of sales. And I think there was some concern about, will I have the capacity to be objective and look at these circumstances and push back on sales? and ensure that we're making good decisions. So for me, I think it's like taking over any team. I went and I listened first. I remember we had an offsite with sales operations in downtown San Francisco. I can still see it where I kind of went and gave a little bit of a spiel on my vision for sales operations and how I really wanted it to be the productivity driver of the business. And that should be our focus. It's just how do we make this machine better and better every day? But most of that first year was learning and trying not to over assert, you know, and guide and make sure we have goal alignment, but really just learning and earning the trust of that group 
and then just making really good business decisions. But also, you have to take some feedback on your ability to be objective, and you have to make sure that the sales operations group is engaged and that they believe in your leadership and they believe you're going to be unbiased in your approach and make the right choice for the business, regardless of which side it falls. So I think it's probably just a playbook for taking on any team is what I employed is you go and you listen, you build trust. And over time, that trust is it strengthens. Yeah, it's another kind of core element of leadership, which is rooted in trust. And you don't always have a lot of time to build it either, especially now in a virtual setting. It's like we have to build trust faster than we ever have. And while you were taking on that journey of learning not only a new aspect of the business, but from a different lens, what were some things that surprised you as you were making that journey? Maybe not surprise, but one of the things that I think we actively chose to do as a part of that transition was try to elevate and highlight the role of sales operations at the time, what's now known as revenue operations. So I think prior to this moment in time, a lot of back office good work was happening. The folks working on trying to get data centralized into one place and having one source of truth. Like these are not glamorous jobs where you're getting the sales alert email every single day, but absolutely critical to your foundation scale. If you don't have talented, engaged people working in those roles, you're not going to be successful. And so a few of us were thoughtful about how do we highlight the operational projects that are happening, the operational excellence that is driving the business? How do we pull sales operations leaders into kind of our recurring executive meeting cycle and so that they're getting the context they need to make better decisions in their job? So again, perhaps not a surprise, but one of the strategies we employed was really elevating the role. And I think that's something that I was able to contribute to the group is making sure that they were getting in the conversation so that they didn't feel like they were being overlooked or an afterthought or that back to the objectivity discussion that like somehow that these conversations were being biased without their side of the story. Once they got in the room, that's one way to build that trust. Yes. And you have this unique perspective that I think so many people would crave, which is you can really truly see how each side could potentially positively or negatively impact each other. And then that's the growth and overall production of the company. So from your standpoint, what are some ways in which you now understand ways that sales interacts with operations in a way that is not helpful or in a way that doesn't move forward? Like if you were to kind of write down like, here's the things that sales typically does that are slowing down the business from your perspective, what would some of those sales mistakes be? <laughs> Demanding to be comped on it. Everything that you know, <laughs> they breathe on. <laughs> Probably number one. I would say generally speaking, the areas of conflict that we have had are when anyone in the business, sales or otherwise, is making a short-term decision or is advocating for a choice that would not be in the best interest of the customer, but might be in the best interest of that particular person. And so I don't want to paint sales with a broad brush stroke, but I think as I think back to the different scenarios that we have encountered over time that have been points of conflict, it's usually someone who is analytical and objective and thoughtful in sales operations saying this is perhaps not the right choice for the customer or the long-term health of our business, and yet it benefits someone in sales. And I think we should probably escalate and have a discussion around this. And it's not necessarily, well, it's hard to fault the salesperson who is trying to hit their quota, trying to put food on the table for their family, and they see an easy path to do that. And so it's about providing the context in that particular circumstance. I'm like, hey, here's why this isn't the right thing for us to do as a business and helping you understand. That's probably the one that jumps out at me the most is this like short term benefiting sales, not benefiting the company. Those are the areas of conflict and quite honestly, as I think back on feedback that I've received for the team or for myself personally, it's like, those are the hot buttons for anybody in operations or in finance. It's like the company's got to win first and we have to ensure that we're set up to do that. 
I mean, as a sales leader myself, look, if I'm being objective, I've definitely been there. And I think about myself, one of the larger mistakes that I made in interacting with the sales operations team is one, to your point, not having a full understanding of the breadth and scope of what they do every day to make me be successful and allow me to be in a position to put food on the table, but also building relationships based on interacting when you need something. Like I would see myself, sales reps on my team, sales leaders on my team. You build the relationship based on like, hey, you work in sales ops. Could you really do me a favor? Thanks so much. It's awesome. And it's like, my advice was always after reflecting on that, it's build relationships with multiple departments in your company so that the relationship exists for when you may need something, but it's far more important than this one flash in a pan need right now. And so the lesson for me is to think broader than your day to day and truly build relationships with every supporting function in a revenue operations org. And not just when you need something and want to suck up and be like, hey, cup of coffee on me. It's like, no, like make a friend first so that we don't have to try to guess what each other's intent may be. I remember having this conversation at some point with somebody about this. (laughs) (laughs) It was me. You've taught me a lot. (laughs) The other thing, I'm glad you brought me back to that. The other thing that I think tactically we did that's made a difference for us over the last few years is we built out sales ops evolves from just the bare minimum of what you need to get contracts out the door and service customers in the beginning. And over time, you add forecasting, you add analytics, you add enablement, you know, all of these great things. So we added just a powerhouse strategy and analytics team. And what we did is for the analysts and the senior analysts that sit in that team, we aligned them to our segments inside of our business so that we could have this daily interaction and so that both sides had the context they needed to make decisions. Because to your point, you know, a little bit joking on, but it was a good point. To your (laughs) point, we had these points of interaction that were only around conflict. Mm -hmm. And so now these teams are more embedded. The analysts and the senior analysts understand what's going on the ground. They're in charge of being side by side with the directors and the VPs in those segments and having what they need to come back and make a good operational decision versus just looking at the spreadsheet and not having the qualitative too. So that has made a difference for us. Yeah. And then flipping it on its head, which I think is equally interesting and candidly a scope that I am not as familiar with because I've never been in a position where I have had to sit because my role demands objectivity. It's more so been, I'm going to try to think of this objectively, but your role demanding it and now being in that role for a while, what are some ways in which people on a revenue operations or sales operations team can be interacting with sales in a way that is not helpful? Or like, what is the list of don'ts that you see from that other side of it flipping on its head? One of the things that I have experienced and have witnessed is we ask a tremendous amount out of our sales operations, revenue operations partners. These are people who are highly bandwidth constrained, really care about doing a good job, but have a lot to do. And occasionally the default to a request from the business, that's going to be a lot of work. I've already got a lot of work. How important is this really? And there can be this push-pull that I think is healthy to an extent of saying, let's justify the business case for whatever this project is, whatever this ask is. But I think on our worst days, sometimes we can, in sales ops, default to no because it's hard instead of maybe let's think about it. (laughs) I won't jump to like, hey, we should absolutely say yes every single time because that's not fair either. But I think sometimes under great pressure and bandwidth constraint, we can default to, hey, that's not going to be the easiest course. Maybe we maintain status quo when we could be open to making something better, but it's going to take some effort and we'd have to prioritize the work and and ensure that there's resources to pull it off. 
That's big. How do you recommend that teams overcome an obstacle like that? Because we all know that one of the resources that is not renewable is time. It is limited no matter what. And everybody feels like everything is urgent all the time. And so if you are somebody who is trying to work with your operations counterpart and you're getting that pushback from them around a time constraint, that's real. What do you do with that? How do you overcome that in a way that keeps the peace and keeps everyone working together? For me, what solves a lot of problems is ensuring you have this alignment and this integration that we've been hitting on. So if you have alignment to the company's key priorities, the company's goals, our OKRs on a quarterly basis, and your sales operations partners are in the room when you debate those things and you decide, then you should have the context for the escalations and be able to quickly decide, hey, does this align to a key priority of ours? Is it near term or is it long term? And should we be aligning resources to to fund whatever idea or initiative there is? But it breaks down and it has in the past. And I think this is one of the benefits of having all the go-to-market teams aligned in one organization is it breaks down when you have competing priorities and you're not aligned on what's important and you don't have the context of the other group. And that's, you know, it's almost a daily battle, even when you're an aligned organization is to ensure that you have the resources on the the right stuff that matters. I think personally, that's mostly the task of the the senior leaders in a go-to-market, the VP SOPs, the VP sales, certainly my role, and probably director level folks to ensure that things are being prioritized in the way that they should Well, that kind of leads me then into we understand now what needs to happen. And I think you're dead on that having this organizational alignment ongoing, not just once, but this ongoing alignment is key and critical for everyone from your frontline sales leader all the way up to your executive level on both departments. What are some of the opportunities on an ongoing basis to ensure that alignment is happening? Are there certain meetings that you suggest? Is it attending each other's one-on-ones? Is it simply building the relationship? Like, How do you tactically make sure that there's that objective alignment? Yeah, I mean, it's all of it. We have, you know, our regular business cadence where we have our senior level meetings, we're reviewing metrics, we're talking about strategy and so forth. We've got team syncs, lots of one-on-ones happening across the business. For me, the secret sauce here is trust. We'll come back to that, especially in the environment that we're operating in right now, where we're remote and you kind of have to force these interactions. You need to be able to trust that your partner, and let's take sales and customer success as an example, that your head of CS understands what the goals of sales are and vice versa and what the key initiatives are happening in CS. head of sales is bought into and like that takes trust otherwise you're going to have people with their own agendas and thinking they best know how to solve the problem without input and collaboration so i think all of it there's hopefully everyone out there is running weekly metric meetings and one-on-ones and team syncs but really i think at least from my experience at glassdoor and in the moment right now the magic is the chemistry of your team and having that trust and the things that you do to create that are super important I imagine that you've been in a situation before where you have either heard directly or gotten the impression that trust it didn't exist or doesn't exist. In your position, what's your first step there when you hear the feedback that the trust is diminished? I imagine that's happened to you. I've certainly felt that. And I think a lot of people listening in could be in a position where they're like, well, yeah, the idea of trust is great, but like, I don't have that and I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it. How do you fix it? I was thinking back on the circumstances that we were both involved in over the years at Glassdoor. And one of them at some point, and I'll keep it very generic, but was sales didn't trust the data that came from sales operations. And so sales operations would come and say, you know, either here's your quota, here's your opportunity in your territory, here's the data we used to segment the business and to give you your territory. And once sales got under the hood, there were a lot of holes to be poked, or at least that was the perception. And so as I think back on that experience, I do think going and understanding the problem of on both sides is key. 
But really, both sides thought that they were doing it right. Sales ops is working with the data that they have coming out of the systems that they have, and sales is using their on-the-ground knowledge of why that data may be inaccurate. But really, the root cause is the data. And so you have to go and get to the root cause. And in our case, it, it took a huge, probably year-long project out of our business operations group to get our data cleaned up so that we had one version of the truth and that the sources of data were limited and not coming from everywhere. And there was consolidation of these things. But it was a huge issue and a big problem to solve that was being experienced on the ground in tiny meetings about territories every day and was eroding the trust of teams. And so if you can come back, and I think, again, this is playbook for any kind of change management, communicate the why of what you're doing, what the problem is, and what you intend to do about it, and you communicate it across both groups, people can still be impatient. They can still be frustrated that you're not moving fast, but hopefully you build a little bit of credibility in the communication there that like it's a known issue and it's being worked on. And if you have long enough tenure, like I do at Glassdoor, you can point to things that have also broken and that you fixed as credibility builders. And I think that's probably where you start. I love that. You never realize how quickly your sales reps become analysts until you give them a quota and tell them to spot check it for errors. And all of a sudden, you realize they're all really good at Excel spreadsheets. When you roll out a new fiscal year and you walk around the floor and your entire sales team is staring at spreadsheets for the first week of your fiscal year that, you know, something's up and you should go investigate. Right. I've yeah. been underpaid by exactly $1.75. And it's the principle. It's I want the principle it now. Right now. Stop what you're doing. And we jest, but also like we're kind of not like that's a real thing. And so the idea of building the trust and what I'm hearing is you talk about people feeling heard. And what I'm also hearing is what you're talking about is rooted in respect and respect that is not given based on your title, but respect that is given in a sense that these are your employees and they're communicating to you as their leader that they have a concern and that they are heard. And it doesn't mean that they are right. It doesn't mean that they are wrong. But I think what you're honing in on is every employee feeling respected and feeling comfortable being able to raise an issue and then trusting that their leadership understands them, respects them, and will come back to them with a solution if needed. And to your point, the more that you do that, even on smaller issues, right? Because it's like if you can show that you can listen and understand and solve small issues and give people that win, then when something really big hits, you have that foundation to build upon. So it's rooted in respect. Looking back now at your experience and sort of where you've led before you were leading multiple different teams to now, do you feel like the key to success is having these departments filter up to one level of leadership to really provide the objectivity? Like, would you advise companies to build their revenue orgs this way? I think every scenario is different and it will depend on the leaders that you have and the opportunity that you have. For us, it has worked. I think generally speaking, when you don't have alignment to goals, like one example that I'll give you is I own sales, customer success and revenue operations and marketing reports into our head of marketing. She and I meet regularly and we are battling the age old sales and marketing, you know, alignment issues on a regular basis, right? But we have a good, very high functioning relationship and it works. A different circumstance might not work as well. So I do think it's a little personality driven. It's leadership driven. It's what the experience of those people are. It's your product market opportunity. So I wouldn't probably advocate for a one size fits all. But I do think in most cases, it makes sense to have your go to market teams rolling up to one leader and to ensure that you're all chasing the same set of numbers. Incredible. I don't want to say that that was a little bit of a trap question, but I feel like 
the answer to that to me is a wholehearted yes because you need those teams working together and before an individual on either side approaches you in leadership you need to have them thinking okay the person that I'm going to is going to be objective about this and they're going to do the right thing and so is my ask framed around doing the right thing for the business yes for my team yes for my customer yes like you almost need them going through this checklist before they raise something to you because the business will be better for it and knowing that you're going to look and do the right thing even if it's not the easy thing I think frames every individual in the right way so I tend to think that this could be a real recipe for success probably the cherry on top that I'd throw on there is communication, which is, yes, communication is important. I'm not going to be the first person to ever say that. (laughs) However, one of the things, again, as I reflect on my journey over the past few years that has become a big part of my job is like chief communicator to the go-to-market. And I've spent a larger and larger portion of my time each year on communication and communication strategy and how do we ensure that the team has the information when and where they need it. And so I think that this is a critical part of regardless of the go-to-market model that you follow and how your leadership falls out is that the people that need to make decisions have the information that they need to have. They have the context on what the company is trying to achieve and ensuring that even if it feels like to me, sometimes I'm like, oh man, we have talked about OKR so many times and no one more QBR. Here we go. But it might be the first or maybe they need two or three times at a, a different part of the company to hear this information. And so just making sure that the goals are repeated almost ad nauseum is a pretty critical aspect of success to this too for me. Well, context is huge. I think it is the ownership of the individual to make sure that they have the context that they need to support their ask or their question or even their initiative. And so the point about context that you make is huge. You have to think through that and it doesn't matter what your role is. Like you have to make sure that you are thinking, do I have all of the context, the information, the data that I need in order to move forward with whatever it is that I need to bring to you? Yeah. I mean, Um, people need to be empowered. They need to be empowered to make decisions. I mean, it's... I am a big believer in that and would encourage anybody in my organization, like they don't have the context they need, if they don't feel empowered with the information to like raise their hand, because that's, man, that's one of the most important things that you can do. Well, if everyone listening is like me, they are just dying to get to know you a little bit better, which brings me to our segment called the rapid reveal. So the rapid reveal is meant to be five questions that you answer in 60 seconds or less, if possible, unless I force you to drone on about it because I get so interested in these. Quite a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to get to know you a little bit better and who has made you who you are in this incredible, strong, passionate female leader. So number one, if you are open to this, let's dive in. Let's do it. Number one, what is the most unique thing about you? I'm not sure it's particularly unique, but what may be surprising to those who know me is I'm actually an ambivert, meaning like, I think if you just met me, you'd be like total extrovert, but I'm a little bit like a wind up toy. When I have to get (laughs) geared up for things, I can be very extroverted. Like I'm pretty extroverted right now. I'm feeling very high energy. And then later this afternoon, I'll need to sit in a dark hole for a while. So I think that might surprise a lot of people is that I do have both of those sides. I love that. As long as you're not a wind-up toy like a jack-in-the-box, because we all know those kinds of people, and those aren't fun. (laughs) Surprise! No Um, comment. (laughs) Right. All right. Number two, what is an irrational fear of yours? I have a lot of them. As I thought about this question, I was like, ooh, there's a long list of these. But the one that I will share is I do have a physical reaction to heights. So I don't know if you've seen that Free Solo movie where he climbs, I think it's El Capitan in Yosemite. I had like a very physical reaction my palms were sweating my heart rate increased like that it's maybe not an irrational fear but we can debate that later 
I feel like height, I feel like the irrationality comes in with like how high is it like, yeah. is there a certain level where you're like, this is it, I've it hit the fear is. threshold? Yeah, yeah, probably. I'm not saying experiment with that, but it would make for an interesting <laughs> follow up to see yeah. where exactly is the height fear we'll find for some you. time to give it some thought. <laughs> yeah. Diving in a little more serious with number three, what was your most recent mistake? I'll actually keep this one lighthearted. I went on a hike about a week ago-ish around here in Marin County where I live. And it was supposed to be like a half an hour, 45 minute little jaunt just to get out. And I made a wrong turn somewhere and I lost phone service and everything. And I ended up hiking for like two and a half hours. Eventually I made it out, but I did think we were gonna have like lost in the wild situation for a few minutes, but I made it out. You need to study the map more closely next time. I mean, depending on how long you were missing, you could have gotten a really good book out of it or like yeah. some sort of story of like the time I got lost in the wilderness. It's true. It's true. Um, I love that. Took a wrong turn. Well, I can kind of guess what the answer to this next one isn't, but if you could spend two hours doing anything in the world, what would it be? We now know that it's not wandering aimlessly through the wilderness, but you have mm -mm. two hours, anything in the world, what also would it be? Also not free rock climbing without ropes. <laughs> right, Mission I, Impossible style. Yeah. This one's pretty easy for me. It's most likely sitting on a beach with my family. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For this one came very instinctually. I was like, yep, beach time with the fam. That's where you want to be. Well, you have a beautiful family, so I don't blame yeah. you for that one. And number five, if you were to make a conscious decision and decide to change the world, what would be the first thing you would do? This is a very big question. I know. 60 seconds, go. As cheesy as it sounds, I do think that we attempt to change the world through our actions and how we treat people on a daily basis. But if we're going to get really meta, I most likely would start calling the wonderful network of friends and former colleagues that I have, because I have freaking kick-ass network of people, talented people. And I'd say, hey, I've got this idea to change the world and convince them to join me in doing it because it's so much more fun to do things like that or to do great things with people you really enjoy and like and respect. I love that the first thing that you said was I would involve people with me and lift them up and we would all change the world together. What a cool thing to focus on that had, shows a very low ego, but an aptitude to work together with people. It's one of the things that I truly love about you. And I imagine that a lot of people are going to want to connect with you and talk to you. One, to hear about professionally how you're navigating this incredible role and to help them, but also to get to know you a little bit better. So we're coming up on time. Where should people go to learn more about you, to learn more about your company, to learn more about your role? How do people connect to you? Probably LinkedIn is the best way. They can find me on LinkedIn. And of course, if you are not already a user of Glassdoor or Glassdoor.com, go check out Glassdoor. Hopefully there aren't too many of you who haven't done that yet. But yeah, I definitely want you to do that as well. Glassdoor is the bomb, leader in transparency in all things, and I can't possibly recommend it enough, so I'm going to double tap on that one. Kate, thank you again for spending time with us, for being so honest and sharing your insight, and once again, helping other people to be better at what they do. It was wonderful having you on Taking the Lead. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Great to see you too, Christina. We'll talk to you later. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.